On the Trump media, like Richter scale, I think this was like a five. When former president got indicted, he's going to have to turn himself in on Tuesday. He's going to get fingerprinted. Like, that's a 10. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, April 3rd, and today on Media Monday, John Kelly and I discuss the media theater surrounding Donald Trump's indictment. The former president is set to show up in New York tomorrow to be arraigned. How will the press cover the case, and will audiences tune in like they did in the early days of the Trump circus? And we discuss a stunning round of senior layoffs at ABC News as Disney's Bob Iger continues his cost-cutting crusade. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to April. I'm joined today by John Kelly, like I am every Monday, because it's Media Monday. And John, you know, we talked about this in the Slack, and I know we're past episode two of Succession, but would you describe Puck as... Substack meets Masterclass meets The Economist meets The New Yorker with high calorie info <laughs> snacks? Or was that just a made up thing? <laughs> succession. You, you know what's funny? It felt so, some of it, some of that, like the media startup the Roy kids are doing, it felt a little close to Puck. You know, you hire the best writers in every field, <laughs> et cetera. Yeah. I think a lot of us on the Slack were charmed and, and chuckled over that. I had a nice, funny email exchange with Frank Rich afterwards in which I, I let him know that they um, uh, ignited the competitive spirit in, in Puck about Frank's <laughs> e- EP on the show. But you know what's interesting? Actually, if you listen to the Succession podcast that Kara does, yeah, um, yeah. she had Frank and Armstrong on the first segment and then Ben Smith uh, from Seven Four on the second. The writers really did not mean that sort of boof as any obviously as any kind of flattery I, I, and i think that they were oh um, yeah no yeah they, they were they were they were really sort of uh, making a a, a mean spirited comment about semaphore and i give ben a lot of credit oh. he um i think he he sort of uh, rolled with it uh, but one thing that they got right uh, that they got particularly right is that there are there is a whole genre of media companies that exist only because uh, and we've talked about a couple of them recently here, but they exist only because they have well-heeled founders who have too much time on their hands. And that was what really went on here. Uh, I can't think of three people less equipped to start a, um, a media company than the, the, the scions of, um, of Logan Roy. And obviously, uh, they didn't have their heart in it. But it, it's, it's usually, um, you know, we, we talked about Jimmy Finkelstein last week. I think this is a little bit of, of what went wrong with, with Quibi. Uh, having mega, mega rich billionaire founders of a startup usually does not work. Yeah, they also have some kind of sugar daddy. There's some, yeah. you know, foreign oil money showing up to help fund the hundred. And at one point, <laughs> they like they're kind of stalling on this meeting, and Roman is like, "Tell them to wait. Tell them to shove their petrodollars up their human rights violations." <laughs> um, you know, the show needs to end, but it's so good. I watched the first episode uh, twice, actually. So did I. In other very, 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 very big news, we usually don't talk that much politics uh, on Media Monday, but Donald Trump is the media. The media is Donald Trump. They are one. Mm-hmm. And it leaked on Friday uh, and was confirmed by various news organizations that Donald Trump will be indicted by a Manhattan grand jury by DA Alvin Bragg, and he is supposed to show up tomorrow, Tuesday, 
to be arraigned. I'm curious, like, watching the media reaction here, I don't want to game out, like, does this help Trump? Does this hurt Trump? But was there anything that jumped out at you about the snap coverage of this when it broke last Thursday night? You know, the the most salient detail to me, the, big, the most surprising detail, uh, and this came from Maggie Haberman, not surprisingly, was that the Trump inner circle was shook by this. I thought that mm -hmm. um, Trump did an expert job front-running this. There was almost like total fatigue about this within the media before it took place, which was because he sort of expertly pre-delivered this. I mean, the guy does have a, a, an incredible radar for mm -hmm. this kind of information. And I found... I know it was an, it was an earthquake. It was it was the banner of, of every uh, you know American and international newspaper, but I just was sort of pleasantly surprised by how quickly everyone jumped to the same conclusion here, and it, it seemed that everyone broadly recognized these are the thinnest charges among the many charges. Uh, this is a significant historical reality, mm -hmm. but also the political overtures are significant. It's going to help him in the primary and probably hurt him in the general and and the back round noise to all this, which uh, I'm curious to get your take on, is you can't write this stuff down in running water, as the, the Greeks used to say, but boy, does it seem like the DeSantis balloon has lost all its air and that the Trump indictment juice may sadly be the secret sauce. So I, I was um, overtaken by how all those uh, data points were, were sort of neatly displayed pretty instantly. What about you? Yeah, I mean, that you're certainly right that that was the snap consensus. I don't know. I disagree a little bit on, first of all, like I, I think the the media, whatever that means, mainstream media organizations generally covered this pretty well. You know, a problem for the center left and the left is that like all of this is totally asymmetrical. If you watched Fox News, it was like, this is a betrayal of justice. This is horrible. Like people were like on Fox were almost in tears over this. And I, I agree with you. Like it was pretty, mm. you know, it was weird. Like the media narrative heading into Thursday was Alvin Bragg is going to delay and stall like he's there's some pol political pressure here that this looks like a thin indictment and he should wait till Georgia comes around. Everyone kind of thought that was true. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't really clear where that was coming from. You know, probably some uh, mismatched reporting somewhere along the line. But I was shocked that Trump's people were shocked. But it's also not shocking that Trump is just going to show up in Manhattan, make a spectacle of this fight it. I mean, that like the idea that he would like post up in Mar-a-Lago and just wait there and like Ron DeSantis would run block for him and refuse to extradite <laughs> Trump to New York was always kind of stupid to me. Like this allows Trump to hog the spotlight of all the consensus views right now. The things I agree with are one, this helps Trump in his presidential campaign in a very big way in terms of raising money. Like the more he's able to raise small dollars off of this, and he, you know, yeah. he has already sent out a shit ton of emails. He posted on Facebook, which I think is the first example in American history of a politician sharing news of their indictment to raise money. Mm -hmm. You know, he so he's just hoovering up dollars right now. And that will just only box out his rivals even more. The place I disagree a little bit and I, with you, and I've had difference of opinion slightly with Tina and with Tara when we've talked about the indictment as it relates to Ron DeSantis and his fortunes is we all have such a short attention span and lack a long-term view of these things. Ron DeSantis hasn't even announced for president. Um, mm -hmm. He still has extremely high favorable ratings among Republicans, especially in early states. 
And the overarching story here is Ron DeSantis's narrative is going to be, I can govern like a real conservative MAGA warrior without the baggage. And Trump is mm. just here accumulating even more baggage. And yeah, I do think this obviously is a detriment to Trump in a general election if he gets there, not just among suburban women, but suburban men who flipped from Trump to Biden in 2020. And unless something crazy happens, it's hard to see them going back to Trump. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, DeSantis has some kinks to work out. He's got to figure out how to respond to questions a little bit better. He's got to get out of his comfort zone, get some batting practice. You know, good candidates grow over time. He might not. He might flame out. But mm. it's March of 2023. There are 11 months until the first Coxes and primaries. And it helps Trump get a, a lot, a lot of attention. Um, but I don't think it totally boxes out Ron DeSantis. But I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something. I'm just taking a kind of like a long term view here, which is that this guy was impeached twice. That was unprecedented. There was a sex tape or, or like the Access Hollywood <coughs> tape, rather, that dropped right before the right. election. Hillary went up by seven points and we all thought she was going to win. Then it closed to three points in the final days. And we know the rest is history. It's just things change over time. And part of the deal with Donald Trump is like, and this is baked into his brand at this point, on the right, he's under attack from the woke left and the deep state, and they're out to get him. And like something like 75% of Republicans think the investigations into him are a witch hunt and they're fake. And then swing voters are fine with the investigations into him and Democrats are overwhelmingly fine. And those numbers don't feel like they have <laughs> budged or changed over time. And it's hard to see them changing in the long run. Yeah, I, I think you're. I think you're right. I'm not trying to say DeSantis is, is in Jeb territory, but I, I do think that um, <laughs> you know. But you mentioned the Access Hollywood tape. As I recall, it, the the four greatest days in Trump's small donor halls were the day after Access Hollywood, right after January sixth, after uh, election was called for Biden. And then I think this will be probably in the Fab Four. So it, it, it is amazing how disastrous, like historical, unprecedented bad news can be perversely contorted into um, economic opportunities. I'm just, I mean, it, it, it's gross, it's crazy, but it's powerful. But what I noticed the most about this was, even though it did sort of send mild shockwaves through the culture, Boy, how things have changed. I mean, it, can you imagine an event like this in the sort of uh, Jeff Zucker era or the or the peak Maddow era or the democracy mm. dies in the dark era or the Times going all in to build its digital subscriptions uh, on, on the back of sort of democracy porn era? Like these things, that was a part of the culture. Mm -hmm. And it just didn't happen. Like I flipped around, uh, you know, from a content side, like I, I didn't think any of the programming was particularly high octane. But it also, it seems like the sort of saturation of Trump, it doesn't have the same impact on the largely kind of liberal-ish, center-ish media mindscape that it used to. And maybe that's because business models are changing a little bit. Maybe that's because people have come to expect this. Maybe there is a fatigue level. I think that, that seems unquestionable at this point. But this was uh, on the Trump media, like Richter scale. I think this was like a five when, you know, when you, mm. to your previous point, former president got indicted. He's going to have to turn himself in on Tuesday. He's going to get fingerprinted. Like, that's a 10. That's nuts. I've been uh, rereading the Bob Woodward book Shadow, which is um, 
Why? You know, fundamentally. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you, you know, because I, um, it's about the impact of um, of Watergate on on the the presidents directly after Nixon uh, through through Clinton, and, and I think it was kind of a money job. I think Woodward took some work from his old books, and then and then he and his assistant reinterviewed mm. the presidents and and added on to it. But I bring it up because I was reading at length the passages about. Jerry Ford and his a couple of days before he became president, when okay. when he and Al Haig were back channeling about uh, about the pardon, uh, Ford to his dying day tried to say he never made a deal, but he he did, you know, um, that that he would pardon Nixon if given the opportunity, and you know they basically. Nixon, you know, resigned. I think on a Tuesday, but he he knew on a Friday before going to Camp David with his family that he was going to um, going to make that decision. And he waffled, but he ended up coming out of it. And he did it because basically the entire American government realized that this has to boil over. We we can't take this anymore. We are in such a state of heat. And it reminded me of the way that I think we all felt in very real poignant moments the muslim ban the night the people went to jfk you know to to protest uh, um charlottesville like uh obviously you know in around january 6th but there were multiple moments like this i don't think anybody um can reach those levels of peak anymore yeah and i don't want to be like a haha nothing matters guy i mean we don't know the exact mm-hmm. details of the indictment i think cnn had a banner at one point last night that there might be like 30 f- business fraud charges in here and I think just attentionally, people are not tuning out politics, but there's just been politics fatigue since Biden won. And, you know, I think we saw in the midterms that at least in the big races, voters showed up to say, we don't want any more of this nonsense. And they cock blocked the MAGA movement (laughs) and then, you know, went back to their daily lives. And I'd be interested to see, I like, I turned on CNN for a minute last night, like Don Lemon was in primetime again, and they had the Trump indictment, like banner across the bottom. I'm interested to see what the ratings are that day and like how much normies are tuning in and not just sort of like resistance people and, you know, cable news addicts, because, you know, we in in the media and politics all get our push alerts and whatnot. But like when this news happened, I was at a work thing with Snapchat last night and like, no one re- was really talking about it, which, you know, these are all like highly educated <laughs> blue bubble dwelling elites. And it's hard to imagine like four years ago, five years ago, it not being the topic of conversation on the top yeah. of everybody's head. And I just think that is a thing in the zeitgeist, which is the zeitgeist uh, wants to chill a little bit <laughs> yeah, sure, and do some therapy uh, and, you know, go for some long walks in the woods and not necessarily be dialed into the stuff all the time. John, I want to take a quick break. And then speaking of TV news, I want to ask you about layoffs at ABC News, obviously under the umbrella of Disney. Welcome back to the Powers of P, everyone. ABC News on Thursday announced that they're laying off a bunch of people, I think about 50 roles in the organization. Yep. A lot of senior people, like I, you know, have interacted with some ABC people over the years. My friends who work at ABC were texting me and they were like pretty shocked actually. This is all part of a larger quote unquote restructuring at Disney uh, under Bob Iger. I think they're laying off around like 7,000 employees across the organization. Um, But this ABC News thing came as kind of a shock because I remember when Iger came in, like this memo went around basically saying like, we still really prize journalism. 
sort of sort of mirroring what what Zaslav has said about Chris Licht and CNN. Like this is about prestige and journalism, et cetera, et cetera. Like don't worry <laughs> too much. And then this landed. What was your readout from these layoffs last week? Well, I think I, I told you um, offline that when I heard about this, I just got a like the chills of um, that final scene in The Godfather One when when Michael Corleone is is having his people just seek vengeance on his enemies. Like, yes, there were 50 people who were who were laid off here and, and, and let go. And as you say, they were they were heavies. Mm-hmm. Major sort of grown-ups in the room, Wendy Fisher and Chris Flasto, who's a borderline, you know, legendary person in this business. And yes, on one level, this is a piece of the larger strategic workforce shrinkage that Iger has signaled that he that I think he needed to signal after the the pelts and uh, Tryon a uh, Tryon capital engagement to move the stock price again. But it also seems like Kim Godwin who has been the president of the vision for a couple of years um, and has a lot of doubters among her ranks, was trying to do something that you see executives do from time to time mm-hmm. and that she was trying to clean house and she wants people who are on board. You know, it, it reminded me on a, on a lower level of when Bob Chapik, remember that guy, got rid of Peter Rice very ham-fistedly. And I think that Chris Licht, did something similar with Stelter and Morse and many others. There's still a few left. I remember, um, I mean, this is a story as old as, as time, but here's what's interesting. So Godwin got there a couple of years ago. Her predecessor, James Goldston, who's the same guy who did the Jan 6 sizzle reel mm-hmm. for, uh, you know, for Congress, he was the executive in charge of Good Morning America, outrating today, which is a you know in, in those wars um, that the sort of endless morning TV land war that the significant deal. Although I think at the end of the day, uh, GMA versus Today is going to turn into CNN, MSNBC, where they both kind of like manage those businesses towards some decline over time. But anyway, it's, a, it's an achievement. And the David Muir Evening News is, is number one, so they have number one in the morning and number one in the evening, and that's a big deal for for a news division. But Godwin inherited that, and. It was, she also inherited a incredibly uh, sharp elbowed culture. I mean, and you know these guys better than I do because you worked in this world. These are the sort of brain poison TV producer types who are ratings obsessed and they want to annihilate the competition. They leak terrible things to page six. There was that awful scandal about the GMA3 co-anchors who are having an affair, which it seems ridiculous, but the fallout wasn't managed appropriately. Anyway, it, it's it's a rough and tumble world. And so my distinct impression is that layoffs were called for. Every television news organization is focused on managing it, it decline uh, on some level, but that this was also an opportunity for management to, um, to clean house a little bit. Uh, I don't have the ratings in front of me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, even though we talk we use the phrase linear decline a lot on this uh, <laughs> at me, you and Dylan in particular. But ABC News, they're the number one uh, World News Tonight's the number one nightly news broadcast. Yeah. GMA's number one morning broadcast. I mean, I think that this is like CNN, Fox and MSNBC get so much attention in my world. And right. by that, I mean, like the political media world. That is what's on in every congressional office. It's if you're like a politics junkie and a Twitter addict, you watch cable news all day long and you kind of forget about like the boring broadcast networks that like the insiders aren't really watching. But there's a reason that Joe Biden keeps going back to David Muir to do interviews over and over and over again since taking office. And it's not because David Muir is really handsome and it's not because it's eight million people people a thousand percent. 
uh, and they can reach people like normal everyday voters and people who vote are over 50 and like watch it's still baked into their daily habit that you watch the evening news along with local news i like watching the nightly mm-hmm. news recaps because it kind of by the way like solves for the thing that every media startup us obviously excluded tries to solve for and like every podcast says in their open like we try to cut through the daily noise and the clutter to make sense <laughs> of what happens today guess what the nightly news broadcasts have been doing that for almost 50 yep. years at this point and it still works i mean like obviously all the sort of like reporter ticks are silly like i have no idea why media trainers tell their talent to talk like this and yell so loud in their track but you know I still get a like quick update on what's going on today, and I find that useful before going back to whatever whatever else I'm doing. Even Nora O'Donnell's broadcast, which is ranked third, I think CBS has been in third place since you know since the rather era, right? Like literally at, since post Cronkite, uh, it's been yeah. 50 years number three. That's still like five million people a night. You know, in the demo, it's probably you know 20 percent of that. But like a good Chris Cuomo era 9 p.m. CNN was like you know 600 something you know um, viewers so and and in the demo was it was a fraction of that so yeah so these things are still relevant and they and they have to be managed and they're the advertising base is also consumer packaged goods pharmaceuticals like it's a very very valuable business and one of these sort of critiques of of godwin um inside the building is that she didn't do this right you know that goldstein's responsible for this but Mm -hmm. but it reminds me of before our generation sort of uh got in front of the wheel like Media executives' main job was to not fuck things up that were working. You find your lane, you find your groove, whether it was book publishing or a magazine or television news or a network. You find what works for you and you keep doing it and and you keep the train on the tracks. And so I actually uh, tend to think that a fair amount of that criticism is, you know, it's that, that William Jennings Bryan quote from inherit the wind you know perhaps it is you that have changed by standing still like i think it's a lot of people who um who don't recognize that uh the the economic environment has changed and and um uh it it, it calls for uh for certain responsibilities and certain focuses wow great william jennings brian shout out here <laughs> on, on the podcasts uh <laughs> all right john well thanks for that history lesson much appreciated we like to lend some historical perspective to to things here on the podcast and at puck Appreciate it, man. I'll see you in the Slack this week. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.